Thank you, praise team. Church, what a great morning we've had to gather and to sing and to worship. It's great to be here with you today. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel in chapter 8. 1 Samuel in chapter 8. Before we get started with the service this morning, the sermon this morning, I want to direct your attention to the screen. Our friend Tom Bonert, Tom and Susan are missionaries in Thailand, members of our church. Uh, they sent some pictures that I want you to see of uh, the first worship service in the newly built Chiang Mai Baptist building. And I think they're coming up here in a moment. At least I was told they were, they're really beautiful. I'm just telling you, like they're great. <laughs> All right, Keith, we got it or no? Okay, so this is, uh, this is the, by the way, this is what you contributed towards. You voted to send money for them to complete the project. You know it's a Baptist church because the front rows are empty. <laughs> and uh, anyway, but there should be one other picture that you can see, but this is, this is what you all voted to contribute so that we could help them complete the project there. And we're so grateful for you and your generosity and your giving because when you give, we're supporting believers around the world and missionaries around the world who are spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. So thank you for that. Uh, but we're also so grateful because when you give, you're supporting people who are members of our church that we know who are serving, whether it's in Thailand or whether it's in uh, Taiwan or wherever it is, your giving goes to support these kind of initiatives and we're grateful for it. Okay, so we're gonna be looking at 1 Samuel chapter eight through 10 today. It's a lot of material, but this is where we're gonna be. Uh, we're calling this text a fork in the road, all right? A fork in the road. Have you ever had one of those experiences? A fork in the road experience? You had a decision to make. Perhaps there was a clear dichotomy between the two choices and whichever choice you made really was gonna set the direction for the course of your life, at least for a period of time. Sometimes the fork in the road is that very thing. But if we're honest, sometimes the fork in the road isn't that serious or it doesn't seem to be because the consequences or at least the implications of the choice that you make may not be obvious in the moment, but you have a decision to make. Have you had one of those recently? Have you had one of those sometime that you can recall? What was it for you? Was it college choice? Was it marriage? Was it children? Was it career change? Was it relocation? Let me ask you a question. How did you arrive at your decision? How did you come to the conclusion that you came to? What was it that you thought through or the advice that you sought to make your decision? Look, there's a lot of advice out there. A lot of advice about how to make those fork in the road decisions, but not all advice is good advice. Sometimes what you'll hear is that people who are in those situations just need to go with their gut. Just go with your gut or just do what makes you most happy or consider what's best for you, not necessarily what is quote right, just do what's best for you in the moment. And I get that sentiment. I really do, but sometimes there is a right and wrong choice. So we can't just go with our gut, we have to make the right 
decision. We can't just do what seems to be best for us in the moment, but we are driven by a principle, a principle of truth, a principle of right and wrong. Now today, as I said moments ago, we're going to cover a lot of ground in 1 Samuel, looking at chapters 8 through 10. We're going to see in chapter 8 that uh, Israel is desiring a king, and we need to interpret this as a rejection of God. It's a rejection of God. In chapter 9, is going to detail how the son of Kish, Saul, is going to be chosen as king, but we're going to see evidence of who the true king is, even in that chapter. And then in chapter 10, it's going to detail the anointing and the proclamation of Saul as king. Though we should be warned, there are many imposter kings. Imposter kings abound. So we'll see, we'll study these three chapters under the headings, be holy, accept God's rule, be perceptive, see the true sovereign, and then beware, imposter kings abound. I'll summarize much of the narrative and read some of the scripture while making application along the way. Would you stand though as we begin? We're going to read the first nine verses of 1 Samuel and chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Verses 1 through 9. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Let's pray together. Lord, as we look to your word today, we pray that you would teach us. We pray that you would show us the true king. We pray that we would be people who are recognizing that the choices that we make are driving us in a direction either towards you or away from you. So Lord, we pray that even in these moments, you would remind us of your your word and of your glory. Remind us of King Jesus. And may we follow after him with all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, in chapter 7, we saw Israel genuinely turned to the Lord. And in the eyes of the Lord, the repentance of Israel was real. That's why Israelites were saved from the Philistines. That's why God delivered them from the hand of the Philistines. And even as we saw, delivered them all the days of the days of Samuel. 
So we need to see here that there is a transition taking place. Now, some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, how could that repentance have been real? I mean, just a chapter ago, they were repenting and now they're rejecting God as their king. Well, it's true, it's just one chapter, but we need to understand that many, many years have passed. Samuel is now old. Besides, I want you to think about your own life. How many times in your own life have you sinned and then confessed your sin and said, Lord, I repent of that. I don't want to do that. But then you find that all too often you find yourself doing the same thing sooner than you wish you would have been caught doing it again. That's how repentance works. Look, we are, we are called to turn from sin, but in our struggle against the flesh, we battle sin. The battle is real. So the Israelites, even though this was just one chapter, this was several years down the road, and now they were rejecting the one true and living God. They were saying, we don't want your kingship. Now, they weren't saying it just like that, but that's essentially what they were saying when they said, we want a human king to rule over us like all the nations, like every other nation. Well, The indication of Samuel's age at first glance seems to play a role in the decision of the elders of Israel to approach him and ask for the king. For some unknown reason, this wasn't wasn't what we saw through the book of Judges, that, that the son of a judge would become the next judge, but this is what Eli did, and now this is what Samuel did, and he made his sons judges over Israel, the southern part of Israel in Beersheba. Unfortunately, his sons were not like Samuel. They were more like Eli's sons. They were not honorable people, and they turned after gain. Now, difference between Eli and Samuel is that even here, Samuel is seen as a godly individual. In fact, the ways of his sons are compared to Samuel's ways. The sons did not walk after their father, Samuel. So we understand that Samuel here is still seeking the Lord. He's still loving the Lord. He's still pursuing the Lord, but he is an old man now. And they say, look, you're old. You're old. We need someone else. We need a human king Samuel, you're not going to be around much longer. We don't trust your sons, so get us a king to rule over us, to go before us, to judge us, to lead us in military conquest, because we want to be like the other nations. I mean, that's the demand that we see here. The demand is for Samuel to appoint for them a king to judge them like all the nations. Friends, this is a fork in the road moment. This is a fork in the road moment for the nation of Israel. Who do they want as king? Who will they follow? Who will they serve? Now, I want us to consider chapter 8 under the heading, Be holy, except the true king's rule. Be holy, except the true king's rule. Samuel doesn't like what he hears. I mean, they ask for a king, and he does not like what he hears, and he immediately turns to the Lord in prayer, right? So he's not happy. He turns to the Lord, and he begins to pray, and what the Lord says in response is key. Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're not rejecting you. They are rejecting me from being king over them. By the way, it's always been this way. From the time I delivered them from Egypt, they've always been turning to other gods. They've always been rebelling. They've always been rejecting me. Samuel, just do what they ask. 
Just do what they ask. Give them what they want. Give them, but give them what they want, but warn them about what they're asking for. So let's just take a step back for a moment and consider the implications of what the elders of Israel are asking for. When God called Abram to himself and said he was going to make him a mighty nation, right? He was going to multiply his descendants as the sand on the seashore and the stars on the sky. And then when he freed them from the land of Egypt and brought them to Sinai and covenanted with them in that moment, he had in mind a people who would be devoted to him. He had in mind a people who would be different from all the other nations, Let me just read for you in Exodus in chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19 and verses two through six. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and now I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Do you see what's going on here? God is saving a people. He is bringing a people to himself. But that people is to be characterized by holiness. They are to be different from everyone else. They are to be God's treasured possession. They are to live according to his ways. Set apart different, people who obey, people who trust the true God. Later on through the prophet Isaiah, God would tell his people that he called them in righteousness. He has taken their hand and he has kept them and he has set a covenant for the people that they are to be, Isaiah 42, a light to the nations, right? So there are people who are holy to the Lord. They are different than everyone else, but in all of that, they are a light to the nations, a light to all the other peoples of the world. In other words, they were to be different. The way they lived, the way they loved, the pursuits of their lives, all meant to point people to the glory of God. In a dark and a broken world, they were to light the way to hope. But now they wanted to be like all the other nations. Something had gone amiss astray, afoul. And they were admitting it with their desire for a king and they had proven it with their rebellion through the years. Israel was not going to be a light to anyone as long as they lived according to their own wisdom and rejected the Lord as the true king. So that's a look at the past, but now let's fast forward. Ultimately, we see that Jesus... Abraham's offspring, the one who fulfills the role that God's people could never fulfill, is the light to the nation. He is the holy one. He is the true light of the world. Jesus is the only one who has ever lived different in the way that he loved, in the things that he pursued, in the way that he obeyed the Father in everything. It's no coincidence that Jesus is called the Holy One. 
because he is the only one who is holy in the full sense of the word where everything he did, he followed the will of the Father. And yes, as followers of Christ, we share in his holiness, but the righteousness that we have is an imputed righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ that comes to those whose trust is in him. It's not that we're perfect because we're not practically. Positionally, yes, in Christ, but only because Jesus Christ is perfect in everything. Peter of the church uses the same covenant language that we saw earlier in Exodus in regards to the church, pointing us to our calling in Christ Jesus. We are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession who are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Church, be holy. This is our calling. Live and love differently because of what Jesus has accomplished. By the power of God's spirit living in you, accept the true king's rule in your life. While we aren't saved based on our ability to follow the true king, we are saved to accept, to love, and to receive the true king's rule. Jesus is Lord. And sometimes as Christians, we forget that that means he is Lord of our lives. But we are called to live for him in everything. So let's be different. The way that we live, the way that we love, let's be holy. Let's live for God's glory and let's gladly submit to his will in everything, always. Well, back in chapter eight, Samuel does warn the people of the consequences of rejecting the Lord's kingship and placing a human king over them. And he tells them what it's gonna be like there in uh, in the following verses from what we just read, verses 10 and and following. Uh, He he basically says that that, that the king's gonna take their son as sons as soldiers, verses 11 and 12. That he's gonna take their daughters as servants, verse 13. That he's gonna take the best of their fields. He's gonna take the best of their servants, the cattle and the donkeys for his own use, verses 15 and 16. He's gonna take their harvest and he's gonna take their flocks and he's gonna tax them. These are the burdens that this king that they're asking for is gonna place upon them. Essentially, he's gonna say, you're gonna be kind of like his slaves. Commentator Tim Chester suggests that this is very similar to what it was like in Egypt. Why did they even leave Egypt? Because now they're going back into a, quote, slavery of sort, just like it was when they were in Egypt. And this is all serious stuff, but did it make a difference? Well, let's look at verses 19 and 20 of chapter eight. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They were set in their ways, rejecting the true king. Which leads us to chapter 9 and parts of 10 in the second heading, be perceptive, see the true sovereign. Be perceptive, see the true sovereign. Whoever turned the air conditioning on, thank you very much. (laughs) Chapter 9 details how it came to be that Saul 
is identified as the soon-to-be king. Now, we learn in chapter 9 there's a man named Kish. He's a Benjamite, and he has a son whose name is Saul. And this guy, Kish, has some donkeys, and they wander off, and they get lost. And Kish is going to task his son Saul to go find these donkeys. So they set out on this journey, and they look for these donkeys, but they look all over all the land of Benjamin, but they can't find the donkeys, and Saul's going to want to go back to his father because he says to the servant who's with him, hey, I think my father's going to be less worried about the donkeys and more worried about me if we don't get back there. But this servant of Saul says, well, wait a minute. There is a man, there is a seer, a man of God who is in this area. We should go to him and see if he can help us find the donkeys. So Samuel says, well, or excuse me, Saul says, well, that's a good idea. Note here that Saul is now being led by his servant, and it's odd, isn't it, that Saul doesn't even know that there is a man of God with a great reputation in that area. To me, I find that very interesting. We don't know who the man of God is, but we might guess, and that guess, if it's Samuel, would be a correct guess. So they go to this man. They find God orchestrates all the details so that Saul and a servant find Samuel. In the meantime, God has approached Samuel and, excuse me, that Saul and his servant would find Samuel. In the meantime, God has approached Samuel and said to him to expect one to come to him. Let me read, for, let me read that to you, chapter 9, verse 15 through 17. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who will restrain, that's important, restrain my people. So Samuel tells Saul all that he needs to know about the donkeys, that the donkeys were found. There's no worry about the donkeys now, okay? And then he invites him to be the honored guest at a meal that he's gonna throw. And then ultimately, Samuel tells Saul that God has anointed him to be prince leader over his people, right? Listen to chapter 10, verse one. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people, Israel? Now after this, Samuel's gonna be on his way, excuse me, Saul's gonna be on his way, but Samuel's gonna give him three signs that all this is gonna come true that all this is gonna to come to pass. And essentially, the signs that Samuel gives to Saul are that he's gonna meet three different groups of people. He tells them locations where he's gonna meet them, the things that the people are gonna have, even the things that people are gonna say, and even that Saul is gonna be made into a new person, that he is gonna be filled with the Spirit, and he is going to begin to prophesy. Now, I've summarized most of chapter nine in the beginning, at least a lot of chapter 10 as well, but note who is really in charge here. It's the one true and living God. God is the one who orchestrates every event that takes place. Why did the donkeys of Kish get lost? So that Kish would send Saul on a mission to find them. Why were Saul and his servant unable to find the donkeys? Only to learn later that they had been found? So that they would ultimately meet up with Samuel. 
so that God's message could come about. Why did the servant encourage Saul to go find the seer? Because God is at work. Because God has already told Samuel what's gonna happen and how he is orchestrating things for Saul to be the, quote, prince or leader over his people. How is it that Saul would meet two men by Rachel's tomb who would communicate the exact same message that Samuel predicted and then then meet three men by the Ark of Tabor carrying very specific things that Samuel communicated and then meet a group of prophets and then Samuel himself be filled with the Holy Spirit so that he would join in the prophesying just as Samuel predicted unless the Lord is the one calling every shot here. He is the true sovereign Our God is the true sovereign. Friends, look deeper and see that the Lord is the true sovereign. He is the one who is orchestrating every event that is taking place in this chapter. It's no surprise to me, friends, that God anointed Saul to be, quote, prince or translated leader over his people. Note that he does not say king here. People are asking for a king. God says to Samuel that he's going to anoint Saul as prince or leader over his people. Friends, in chapter nine, verse 17, we read that Saul is the one who would restrain God's people. Some of your your translations may say rule God's people, but restrain is the right translation. It tells us that that there is a, a code by which Saul is to lead or to restrain the people that God has already put in place. God is in control. God may be anointing Saul as prince over his people and yes, king, but God is not giving up his authority. God is not stepping off of his throne. God is still the true sovereign. God is still in charge. He's calling the shots. He is the true king of his people. And this is how our God is depicted in scripture, right? The true sovereign, the true king, the exalted one, the one who is in heaven and does all that he pleases. God may be giving the people what they want, a king like all the other nations, but this just an aspect of his judgment on his people as they are rebelling against him. But he is still the sovereign and he is still the true king. Now, before we transition to the last point of application, one thing to keep in mind here is that God allows for Saul to be king. And at one level, Saul is God's choice, okay? We have to understand that. At one level, Saul is God's choice. But don't miss that Saul is the people's choice. He is the handsome young man who is taller than everyone else. He is the one that the people want to rally around. He fits the bill of what they were looking for in an earthly king. Of course, they were only looking at the externals. Pastor and author Richard D. Phillips writes, Israel demanded a worldly king. Saul was God's answer to them. So here's an example of God giving the sinful and rebellious people what they wanted as an aspect of his judgment on the people. Now we're gonna see this in a minute, but when God, see this in a, in a few weeks, but when God rejects Saul and he finds another, David, it is a man after God's own heart then, of God's choosing, even if he 
even if he didn't, David have that same external image as Saul in the moment. With that, finally, beware imposter kings abound. Beware imposter kings abound. So as we continue in chapter 10, I want you to listen to verses 17 through 19. Chapter 10, verses 17 through 19. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you, but today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So Samuel tells them what the Lord has done, how the Lord has saved them, how he's rescued them, how he's delivered them, how he has cared for them through all these years. But then he also tells them what Israel has done that has rejected him, rejected the Lord and demanded a king. Isn't that amazing? We might think that Samuel is beating a dead horse because I've read this multiple times and it's gonna come up again and again in the next couple chapters. Samuel doesn't miss an opportunity to tell the Israelites how sinful and rebellious they are in this choice. As they choose the wrong fork in the road, they go the wrong direction, Samuel is continually telling them, look what you're doing. Look how foolish this is. Look at what you're doing. You're rejecting the one who has saved you. Well, the next verses then tell us how the tribes of Israel were gathering around and and how by means of the casting of lots, it came to the tribe of Benjamin and to the house of Kish, and then Saul was going to be chosen as king. And while God had already selected in private Saul as the king of their choosing, this ceremony then would give credibility to how they came about of coming to uh, this one named Saul. Interestingly, when the lot landed on Saul, he was nowhere to be found. Isn't that odd? He was nowhere to be found. Everyone's like, well, where is he? They're all confused. Let's read in verse 20 and following. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot, and he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of uh, Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. When they had sought him, they could not, they, they, they could, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Now, interestingly, that term baggage really just means stuff. He's hiding amongst the stuff. We don't know what the stuff was, but that's not important. What's important is that he is hiding. Now, some commentators will say, well, this really shows Saul's humility in the moment. Maybe. I think it shows his fear in the moment. I think it shows that he is, he is a fearful person and he's hiding because he doesn't know what's to come and what to do in the moment. And some read sarcasm into Samuel's words there in verse 24. There's no one like this guy. Look, he's hiding. Could be, could be sarcasm. But when they see him, they say, long live the king. They're just, 
They're just so set in their ways, rebelling against the one true in God, true and living God. Long live the king, the one who's hiding among the baggage. Now, as we close, I want to clarify, Saul did do a few good things as king. But when we look at his reign overall, which we'll see in the coming weeks, it's an utter and complete failure. In fact, he'll end up fighting against the will of God. And friends, this reminds us that there is one true king. And his name is Jesus. Fallen humans are guilty of seeking out, setting up, and serving imposter kings all the time, right? People who fit our descriptions of what we want or what we think is important in in a king or in, in, in an idol. Even the greatest human leaders fall short. Don't be deceived, friends. There are imposter kings everywhere. Some are self-promoters. Some are elevated to heights because of the values of the people, but none of them are worthy of honor and glory and worship that we give them. And just to be clear, this is a political situation, and there are political kings and idols out there today, but they're not all of political nature. Fallen humans make idols out of athletes and entertainers and celebrities. And while the worship of such people may not look like we bow down to them, think about how we seek to emulate people. Think about how we give money to people, buying their albums, supporting their debauchery, thinking through how we arrange our schedules and our time around them, their events and their productions. This is an ever-present danger, friends. There are imposter kings all around us, but only Jesus is worthy of all that we are. Only he's worthy of our time and energy and resources. There's one true king, and he deserves our all, and he deserves our worship, and he deserves our priority. So don't fall for imposters. People or material things that would seek to rule and reign over your life. Install Jesus as the true king and live fully for him because only Jesus deserves it. Only Jesus fulfilled the will of God in everything. Only Jesus went to the cross to die for your sin and rose again on the third day. Only Jesus offers forgiveness and reconciliation with the one true and living God. Only Jesus loves you enough to die in your place. Friend, this morning, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know the forgiveness of sin, if you don't know the hope of eternal life that's found only in Christ Jesus, then this morning, during our time of invitation, come and we want to share with you the hope that is found in him. We want to share with you the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your own life, friend, don't miss the fork in the road. It may not seem like there's a lot of riding on that decision right now, but in the end, it is eternal consequences forever. Don't miss the fork in the road. Even today, would you humble yourself and put your hope in Jesus Christ? Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. Today we declare that you are God, that you are holy, that you are worthy, that you are good, and that you are the true sovereign. And today we declare that we love Jesus and that we need him for all he is and all he's done. 
So Lord, in this room, would your spirit work? Would you draw us close to you? Would you humble us? Would we confess sin? Would we turn to you? And Lord, for those who are apart from you this morning, would you convince them Would you make it clear that their hope is only found in Jesus? We pray these things for your glory. In his name we pray, amen. Friends, if you have questions about the gospel and eternal life, we wanna connect with you and talk with you. If you have questions about baptism or church membership or you need prayer, we're here and we'd love to connect with you about any of those things. Would you stand and would you sing with us as we 